calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com contagious. You dropped a bomb on me. The situation room buzzed with conversation. Images of the Marinesco gate lit up most of the flat panel monitors. To Murray, there was something inherently defeating about that image. Via satellite, drone, and surveillance planes, they had watched Ogden's men attack the gate in South Bloomingville. They had watched it catch fire, watched it burn and crumble. And yet, here was a second gate that looked almost exactly the same. Other monitors showed digital maps of Michigan, a green circle in the Upper Peninsula marking the gate, F-15 icons marking the position of Ogden Strike Eagles. Those planes were just edging over Lake Michigan. They had already covered half the distance from South Bloomingville to Marinesco. One large monitor showed nothing but a countdown. 15 minutes, 23 seconds and counting. When that hit zero, the Strike Eagles would drop their payloads unless the president called off the attack. Gutierrez had given up on trying to look presidential. Small beads of sweat dotted his forehead. Despite appearances, though, he hadn't given in to the stress. He asked intelligent questions, he demanded intelligent answers, and he had the Joint Chiefs jumping at his commands. God damn it, gentlemen, Gutierrez said. You cannot tell me that we have no other forces that can reach Marinesco and attack that gate in the next 15 minutes. That's exactly what we're telling you, said General Hamilton Barnes. As chairman of the Joint Chiefs, delivery of most military-related bad news fell to him, although Monty Cooper, the Marines' top man, wasn't afraid to enter into the conversation uninvited. Mr. President, sir, Cooper said, we are in the middle of fighting two wars and a police action on foreign soil. Even if our troops were not badly depleted because of that, there is no way we could put a company-sized element into play in Michigan's Upper Peninsula in less than an hour. The fastest responding unit is the division-ready force from the 82nd Airborne. First response elements of the DRF can be anywhere in the world in 18 hours, anywhere in the U.S. and probably seven. And you have no idea how fast that is in military terms. With all due respect, sir, we can't just wave a fucking magic wand and make troops appear. Barnes turned toward Cooper, obviously to lay down a fast rebuke. Save it, General Barnes, Gutierrez said. It takes more than a little language to offend me. But don't do it a second time, General Cooper. 
Sir, Cooper said. Gutierrez's eyes flicked up to the clock. Murray looked as well. 13 minutes, 54 seconds. How long until Company X reaches the gate? Gutierrez asked. Their Ospreys just took off from South Bloomingville, Barnes said. In a little under two hours, they can attack. The Apaches are over an hour away. Gutierrez gave the table one quick, frustrated fist pound. I don't understand, Vanessa said. How can a colonel have the authority to launch a bombing attack like this? Doesn't he need to clear it with at least the Joint Chiefs? General Barnes answered. Ogden is the battlefield commander. He has the authority to use any elements at his disposal to achieve the objectives set before him. He doesn't need approval to deploy resources already under his command. This is ridiculous, Vanessa said. He doesn't need approval for anything? President Hutchins set it up this way for a reason, Murray said. In the time it's taken us to get the information and begin a discussion about what to do, the jets are already halfway to the target. Ogden can order options one through three without oversight. Only option number four requires presidential approval. And what exactly is option number four? That's the big whammy, General Cooper said. Option four is a tactical nuke. A nuke, Vanessa said. On American soil, are you kidding me? A tactical nuke, ma'am, Murray said. We have three B-61 warheads available. They're variable yield warheads. We can dial the blast for anything from 0.3 megatons to 170. Murray, Gutierrez said. How could Hutchins have even considered dropping a nuke? We have to acknowledge the possibility that we won't see a construct in time, Murray said. If that happens, it'll open up and deliver that initial beachhead force. We don't know what kind of weaponry or technology we'll be dealing with at that point. We have to have this level of response in order to take out both the construct and the enemy force. This is insane, Vanessa said. It was approved by President Hutchins, Murray said. Hutchins isn't the president anymore, Vanessa said. John Gutierrez is. Murray nodded. And the orders of a former president stand until the current president gives new orders. Vanessa turned to face Gutierrez. So give a new order, Mr. President, she said. Call this whole thing off. Gutierrez sat back in his chair. These conventional bombs Ogden ordered. What kind of hardware are we talking about? General Luis Monroe, the Air Force's top man, spoke for the first time. The GBU-31, version 3, is a 2,000-pound bomb. It's a bunker buster. Biggest thing we've got short of a nuke. The blast will kill everything within 110 feet to the point of impact and will cause casualties at over 100 yards. Total blast radius is about 4,000 feet. A radius of 4,000 feet? Vanessa said. But that's a diameter of a mile and a half. Monroe nodded. They've worked very well in Iraq and Iran. If it was daylight, the smoke cloud would be visible for 20 miles. All the surrounding towns will feel the impact, probably think it's a minor tremor. How the hell are we going to keep that a secret? Vanessa asked. I prepared a cover story, Murray said. This is a very rural area, remote, so it's feasible a terrorist cell set up a bomb-building facility. We learned about it, determined it was possible they were building a dirty bomb, so we sent an F-15Es to take it out. Dirty bomb is a radiation threat, so we can lock down a large area while we investigate. Everyone wins. 
Intelligence got the info. Executive branch reacted definitively. Military took out the terrorists. All eyes watched Murray. The Joint Chiefs weren't surprised. They'd seen him do things like this before. Donald Martin didn't look surprised either. Working his way up to Secretary of Defense, he'd undoubtedly seen such lies. Gutierrez, Vanessa, and Tom Maskell, however, looked astonished. Domestic or international terrorists? Gutierrez asked. Murray shrugged. Whichever you prefer, Mr. President. I have an extensive background developed for a white supremacist group, if you want to go that route. Or we can go Al-Qaeda. Your call. Gutierrez rubbed his hands together slowly as he thought. Let's do the white supremacists, he said. I can't have foreigners building a bomb on U.S. soil. Yes, Mr. President, Murray said. I can make that work. John, Vanessa said, astonished. You've got to be kidding me. You're going to let those jets drop bombs and lie to the American people about it? All around the table, eyebrows raised at her use of the president's first name. She didn't seem to notice. Neither did Gutierrez. I just don't know what choice we have, he said. We have the choice of telling the truth and trusting the people, Vanessa said. General Cooper laughed at her. <laughs> Ma'am, with all due respect, where did you learn about the world? From a game of Candyland? We're talking aliens and intergalactic gates caused by an infection that starts as a goddamn skin rash. We tell the people about this and the country will disintegrate in total chaos. I disagree, Vanessa said. The people will come together for this. Cooper laughed again and started to say something back, but Murray interrupted. We need a decision, he said. The screen behind the president changed from a static picture of the gate to a high-altitude cockpit cam shot. The cool blacks and blues of a frozen Wisconsin forest raced by. A few spots glowed white as the plane passed over houses. The Strike Eagles will commence their bomb run in two minutes, Mr. President, Murray said. If you want to call this off, you have to say so right now. Gutierrez sat back in his chair and steepled his fingers together. He let out a heavy sigh and looked at the ceiling. Murray could sympathize. Carrying out an executive order that could result in civilian deaths was one thing. Being the guy to give that order, that was another. The main flat panel monitor flared with a new light. The construct had just started to glow. Damn. Gutierrez said. How long do we have, Murray? Based on Wajamiga, maybe 15 minutes. We're just not sure, Mr. President. Gutierrez nodded. If we drop these bombs, how many people do you think could die? Off the record, just give it to me straight. Murray shrugged. If we're lucky, none that aren't already infected. It's a very remote area, so if we're unlucky, 10 at the most. Gutierrez nodded. Proceed with the bombing. Get Tom a briefing paper that covers the high points of your cover story. Call a press conference for 8 a.m. Donald, General Barnes, you'll be with me for that conference. He turned in his chair to watch the bomb run. Vanessa wasn't watching the screens. She was watching Murray. All the values Gutierrez had espoused while running for office had just taken a back seat to reality. In her idealistic mind, she probably blamed Murray for that. Too bad, so sad. The president was making the right choice for the country, and she'd just have to deal with it. Within seconds, the screen's cool blacks and blues revealed a white dot. 
That dot quickly grew in size. It was a little shaky, a little grainy, but there was no mistaking the construct's definitive fishbone shape. A slash entered the screen from the top right. A split second later, the screen lit up in blinding white. That white quickly vanished, revealing a rising plume of smoke that started out white hot, but soon faded to a flickering light gray. Everyone sat and silently watched. Donald finally broke the silence. I sure as hell hope they didn't build a third. Autopsy number one. Margaret watched Gitch and Marcus push the sturdy autopsy trolley up the ramp and through the right side door into the back of trailer A. There was a lot of room in the body bag on that gurney. The little boy's body inside, like a single pea in a pod made for three. She followed the trolley into the white airlock room, then shut the gas-tight outer door behind her. The three of them waited in the narrow airlock as the pressure inside equalized, which had to happen before the gas-tight inner door would open. Smooth white epoxy covered every surface, just as it did in all of the trailer's biohazard areas. The entire trailer, including the computer room, had a double seal. A continuous epoxy coat, then all wiring and ductwork, then a second epoxy wall. As in any BSL lab, the goal was to remove as many nooks, crannies, and edges as possible. Above the inner door, a light changed from red to green. Margaret opened the door, then followed the trolley into the decontamination chamber. Gitch closed the inner door behind them. She stood back as the men worked controls that brought forth the high-powered spray of liquid bleach and chlorine gas from nozzles mounted on the walls, floor, and ceiling. Gitch and Marcus moved the body bag around, making sure the nozzles hit every last square inch. Margaret spread her arms and turned slowly letting the lethal spray cover her biohazard suit. She checked her heads-up display for breathable air. Her suit tank had 20 minutes left. The decon chamber was really the only place they used the oxygen tanks. The rest of the time, they connected the helmets to the trailer's air supply via built-in hoses or just relied on the filter system. The suit's filters could handle anything from a half micron or larger, but chlorine gas would seep right through, burn the lungs, and bring a painful death in a few short minutes. After Marcus and Gitch finished rinsing themselves in the chlorine spray, Margaret opened the final gas-tight door and stepped into the autopsy room. At 8 feet wide by 20 feet long, this was the largest area in the Margomobile. Gitch pushed the trolley all the way to the room's far end, where it locked into place at the front of an epoxy-coated sink. The two-foot-wide trolley left three feet of space on either side. Plenty of room to work. He turned a knob at the foot of the trolley raising the end one inch. The shallow angle ensured that any fluids would run down the ridges of the trolley sides and spill into the sink, which drained into the waste treatment system. Okay, guys, let's get connected, Margaret said. Four curled yellow hoses hung from the ceiling. She reached up, pulled one down, and handed it to Marcus. He connected the hose to the back of her helmet. She felt a quick hiss as pressurized air slid into her suit making it puff up a little bit more. In her heads-up display, the internal air supply timer faded to a thin, ghostly illumination, while the circular logo that marked an external oxygen supply glowed to life. The wireless communication icon also faded as the network connection light lit up. Let's get him out of the bag, Margaret said. After connecting their own helmets, Gitch and Marcus unzipped the outer body bag and pulled it off. 
Marcus put it in a red disposal chute marked with a bright orange biohazard logo. They repeated the process for the second bag and put the child's body on the table. Margaret couldn't suppress a shudder. His Milwaukee Bucks shirt had slid up around his armpits. Dossie's kick had smashed at least eight of the boy's ribs, caving them inward like so much broken pottery. The child's spine was snapped on the right side of the eight thoracic vertebra, bending him at nearly a 90-degree angle to his right. A mask of pure rage had frozen on the boy's face, a wide-eyed, teeth-bared snarl that broadcast absolute hate even in death. She had seen faces like that too many times. The faces of the infected. Gitch, get a sample and a microscope right away. I want to see the level of decomposition. Then prepare the injections. Marcus, bring me the swab test prototype. Yes, ma'am, Marcus said. Recorder on, Margaret said. A green light flashed in the upper right-hand corner of her heads-up display, signaling that everything she said and saw was being recorded in the control room. I'm online, Margaret, Clarence said, his voice in her earpiece. I have the other bodies in the second trailer. Amos is checking out the baby, but he looks fine. Did you run the test prototype yet? Hold on, I'm doing it now. She held out her hand, and Marcus gave her a small, white electronic device the size of two packs of cigarettes joined end to end. He then opened a thin foil packet and pulled out a four-inch plastic stick, the last half-inch coated with damp fabric. She slid the fabric end along the boy's gum line and against the inside of his cheek. The triangles harvested sugars common in the human body and used them to make cellulose, a material found only in plants. The cellulose formed a construction material that allowed the triangles to grow into hatchlings. Her theory was that some of the cellulose would leak into the bloodstream and eventually permeate bodily fluids, including saliva. The prototype had few controls. The primary feature was a row of three square lights near the top, orange, green, and red. She slid the plastic swab into a matching slot in the handheld device, and the orange light flashed, indicating a test in progress. The next indicator would be the green light, showing no trace of cellulose, or the red, if the material was present in concentrations greater than one might find in a random grass stain. The light flashed red. It works, Margaret said. Clarence, the test works. Fantastic, he said. I'll let Murray know immediately. He can rush the testers into production. Great job, Margaret. That finally gives us what we need. Thank you, Margaret said. She had grown rather fond of Clarence's voice in her ear as she worked. He stayed in the computer control room, managing any requests she had, listening into her and Amos theorizing as they cut up infected bodies. Gitch tapped her on the shoulder. Samples up on the screen, Margot. She turned to look at the large flat panel monitor mounted on the wall. She hadn't designed the trailer, but the monitor was her idea. Looking into microscopes was kind of annoying. Routing them to a big plasma screen let everyone see what was going on. The screen showed what she expected. The red, pink, and white of highly magnified flesh and blood vessels, along with the gray of decomposing matter and the black of cells that were already long since destroyed by the apoptosis chain reaction. Only about 25% decomposed, the best sample she'd had yet. Even so, she didn't have long. Okay, boys, Margaret said, turning back to the table. 
We need Thor quickly. Anthony used scissors to cut away the boy's yellow pajama bottoms and t-shirt, leaving his bent body naked on the table. Caucasian male, approximately six years old, Margaret said. Severed spinal column, massive blunt force trauma. Even before cutting into him, she could see that the boy's internal organs were smashed to hell. One triangle on the stomach, Margaret said. Heavily damaged, lowest priority. One in the front upper right thigh, intact, highest priority. Turn him over, please. The assistants flipped the little corpse. Now his broken body angled to Margaret's left instead of her right. One in the lower back, just above the eighth thoracic, completely destroyed, lowest priority. No other triangles visible on the body. Flip him back and let's give him the injection series. Maximum dosage. I'll take the right thigh. They gently put the corpse on its broken back again. Marcus laid out six large syringes, each with a long needle sheathed in hard plastic. Margaret carefully unsheathed the first syringe and went to work in the area around the triangle. As soon as the triangles died, they caused a chain reaction of apoptosis. Apoptosis is a normal part of human health. Sometimes cells outlive their usefulness and become a drag on the body, so they self-destruct. The triangles did something to that chemical code, however, turned it into a cascading event that dissolved all the tissue of an adult male in less than two days. Margaret had tackled that problem in working to save Perry's life. She'd performed immediate surgery on him to remove any trace of the dead triangles rotting inside his body. That hadn't stopped the apoptosis, but it slowed it, giving her enough time to find a solution. Apoptosis is driven by proteins called caspases. Also known as the executioner proteins, caspases exist in every cell and in an active form, but when cells are damaged or old, the caspases activate and kill the cell. In a normal person, other proteins known as inhibitor of apoptosis proteins, or IAPs, shut down the process as soon as the intended cell dies. The triangles corrupted this normal process by neutralizing the IAP's suppressive abilities, allowing the caspases to spread the deadly chain reaction to surrounding cells, which then released their caspases, which then destroyed more cells, and so on. She'd fought this process by testing multiple drugs that inhibited caspases. The magic formula turned out to be a trial drug called WDE-4-11, which successfully shut down the apoptosis chain reaction. That saved human tissue, although the triangle corpses still decomposed within hours. That meant she could operate on live hosts, remove the triangles, then use WDE-4-11 to stop the apoptosis. Despite Perry's naive, violent beliefs, she could save them. When she did, however, saving the tissue was only one step. She also had to deal with the mental effects. For that, she had a battery of mood-controlling drugs at her disposal, including drugs that had tackled the chemical imbalances in Perry's brain and returned him to a semblance of sanity, or so she'd thought at the time. She focused her attention on cutting the triangle free from the dead boy's leg. The human tissue would keep, but the triangle would be black ooze in only a few hours, and she needed to move fast. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. 
in a time when the world outside is unsafe. It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Mean drunk. Dew parked the Lincoln in front of Perry's motel room. Fluffy snowflake clusters had replaced the rain and hail. As the saying went, if you don't like the weather in Wisconsin, just wait 10 minutes. Dew had heard the same kind of jokes about Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and they were all true. Perry sat in the passenger seat. He'd passed out with a beer in his left hand, his right still wrapped around a tattered six-pack that only had two bottles left. Dude didn't want to act as a chauffeur for this psycho piece of shit, but he wasn't about to put someone else at risk. Wake up, Dew said. Perry didn't move. Dew put the Lincoln in reverse, backed up about five feet, put it in gear, then gunned it and jammed on the brakes. Perry's big body lurched forward against the seatbelt. His head snapped up and he blinked in confusion. Home sweet home, Dew said. Perry turned and looked at him with drunken eyes. Thanks, Pops, he said. Dew said nothing. Perry stared and smiled for a few more seconds, seeming to wait for a response. He didn't get one. When he got out, the Lincoln rose at least six inches. God damn, but that kid was big. Dew shut off the car and got out. His room was right next to Dossie's, just like always. Dossie, you gonna stay in your room tonight? 
Are you going to find some more kids to kill? Du asked. I thought killing babies was your gig. Du shook his head. A goddamn baby killer reference. He'd walked right into it, sure, but even drunk, that kid really knew how to push his buttons. You know what? Du said. I'm too old and too tired for this. I'm going to bed. You go drink yourself into a coma. Just don't die on me or I'll get in trouble. He walked to his room, keyed in, then shut and locked the door behind him, leaving Dossie standing in the snow. Perry nodded. Don't die on me. That's all he was to these people, an asset, a freak. He keyed into his room, shut the door, then fell on the bed. He dropped his beer. It spilled on the carpet. That was okay. He had two more. He rolled to his back and stared at the ceiling. It was spinning pretty good. Without looking away from the ceiling, he felt for another bottle, found it, and twisted off the top. He upended it. Most of the beer splashed on his face or landed on the bed, but some of it went into his mouth, so it wasn't all bad. I got some more, Bill, Perry said. I killed those motherfuckers. Bill didn't answer. He never answered direct questions. Just piped up unexpectedly from time to time, told Perry to get a gun, kill himself. Bill. Why the fuck did Margot have to bring him up? Perry drank to forget Bill. Well, it didn't work. Nothing Perry ever did worked. Except when he wanted to hurt someone. To kill someone. That worked every time. What the fuck was Dew's problem anyway? Pretending to get all pissed about that family? Why didn't Dew and the others understand? Those people weren't human anymore. They were weak. They didn't have discipline. That meant they needed to die. If one of them, any of them, was even trying to cut out the triangles, then Perry would let them live. Maybe. But it didn't matter. Because so far, no one had fought. No one but him. Why? Why was he special? He knew why. Because his drunken, fucked-up, wife-and-child-beating father had toughened him up with a strap. Perry set the beer bottle on the bed to the right side of his face. He tipped it. This time, more made it into his mouth and onto the bed. His face was all wet and sticky. He didn't feel a thing for the infected. Not a thing. That freaking kid had rushed him for crying out loud. They weren't just infected. They were stupid. That was the last thought to go through Perry's mind before he passed out for the second time that night. The Backyard of Chewy Rodriguez. Chewy Rodriguez lived at the corner of Hammerschmidt and Sarah Streets in South Bend, Indiana. Chewy had a wife, Kiki, and two kids, John, 16, and Lola, 14. In their backyard stood a sparsely leaved oak tree suffering from some kind of bark rot. The tree had another three years, maybe five, and Chewy was already dreading how barren his backyard would look when he had to cut it down. Chewy's tree, however, wasn't really the point of concern. For that, you had to look directly above the tree, some 40 miles directly above it. If you could look up there, even with a very high-powered telescope, you might not notice a little blur, like a tiny heat shimmer. That shimmer came from visible light wavelengths hitting an object, sliding along its surface, 
then continuing on their way with almost their exact original trajectory. The object wasn't truly invisible. Were it some massive thing taking up half the horizon, everyone would have spotted it by now. Since it was just a bit bigger than a beer keg, however, no one noticed. This object was inanimate, cold, calculating. It had no emotions. If it did, when it felt the Marinesco gate vanish in a ground-rending explosion, it probably would have said, Ah, fuck, not again. The object's shape had once been quite smooth and polished, like a teardrop with a point on both ends instead of just one. But that had been at launch. Before the long journey, it brought it into a geostationary orbit above Chuy Rodriguez's diseased oak tree. Space isn't really empty. It's got stuff in it. Stuff like dirt, rocks, ice, various bits and pieces. Only those pieces are spread really, really far apart. If you travel far enough through that not-so-empty space, you're going to run into that stuff. Depending on how fast you're going, hitting even a teeny speck of dust can cause quite a bit of damage. The double teardrop rock had been engineered to take that damage and keep on flying. The engineering worked, mostly, but the object's pitted and cracked exterior bore witness to a design adage true anywhere in the universe. You can't test for everything. It had come so close to completing the mission. Once again, however, stopped before the gate could open. Once again, stopped by the rogue host. Stopped by the son of a bitch. Its mission was simple in concept. Travel straight out from the home planet and search for signals that indicated sentient life. Space, as mentioned before, is big. Searching space for a suitable planet would require an investment far greater than even the economy-breaking project that had launched this object so long ago. There was one way, however, to narrow the search for planets that sustain life. Find planets that already have it. It did that by tracking broadcast signals. Broadcast signals meant several things. First, they meant a planet that could support advanced biological life. Predictable ranges of gravity, density, temperature, gases, and liquids. Second, broadcast meant a predictable range of resources. Odds were a planet of nothing but silica and sulfur could not create technology capable of sending signals into space. Finally, and perhaps most important, broadcasts indicated a large population capable of performing technically advanced tasks. And that was important when you wanted slave labor to build your colonies for you. Colonies, like exploration, are prohibitively expensive operations. Enslaving a native population provides a low-cost solution. It also helps cut off a potential interstellar rival. If all went well, if the planet had suitable gravity and atmosphere, the object could get cracking. It would seed the planet with machines that could build a portal, a portal that connected two places so far apart that no living thing, nor the children of that living thing, nor the great-great-great-grandchildren of that living thing could survive the trip by any other means. With the portal, however, such a trip took place instantly. Hundreds of light years traversed in the blink of an eye. This object, this orbital, had arrived in Earth's solar system some 20 years ago after detecting multiple signals, radio, television, microwaves. It approached slowly, cautiously, because there was always the possibility that sentient life was too advanced and would see it coming. 
so the orbital watched for a few years. It analyzed, eventually reaching the conclusion that it could move into a low stationary orbit without being detected. Once the orbital drew to the operating range, it spent more years watching. While there were multiple shapes and forms in the signal, the dominant species was almost always present. Suffice it to say that thanks to repeated image analysis, the orbital knew a human when it saw one. After seven years, the orbital knew humanity's technological capabilities. It could identify major population centers and, more significantly, areas of little or no population. It could not understand any languages, but it didn't need to. It would accumulate language once the probes were successfully deployed. The orbital carried 18 of the small, soda-can-sized probes, each of which could cast more than a billion tiny seeds adrift on the winds. Each seed contained two main elements. The first was the microscopic machinery needed to analyze potential hosts and hijack their biological processes. The second was a tiny, submicroscopic chunk of crystal. This chunk matched exactly with one in the center of every other seed and, more importantly, inside the orbital. This irreplaceable, unreproducible chunk was the template, the device that reshaped the molecular structure of biomass so that it became the material needed to build a gate. The first probe had been a total failure. Bad luck with the weather. The second probe actually produced several connections, but unfortunately, they were all with non-sentient animals. When that happened, the seed simply shut off. A half-formed triangle on a caged or pen-domesticated animal could potentially alert humanity to the hovering threat. The seeds also needed sentient hosts to develop workers that could communicate and work together, could use tools and vehicles, could learn about the area and potential dangers. It wasn't until the sixth probe that seeds latched onto a sentient being. Although those seeds died early, the orbital was able to gather some biofeedback. It analyzed the data, identified key problems, then modified the next batch accordingly. The seventh probe proved closer still. More development, including successful creation of the biological material needed for worker construction. These were the strange red, blue, and black fibers that would come to be associated with Morgellons disease. Batches 8 through 10 were each more successful than the last, creating firm connections that flooded the orbital with valuable biofeedback. It learned much about the structure of host species' DNA, refining the self-assembly process to a highly functional level. It gathered data about brain composition and chemical structure, enough to manipulate host behaviors to steer them away from associating with non-infected hosts. Batch 11 was a landmark achievement. Access to the higher levels of a host's brain, including memory and language processing. The orbital began to build a vocabulary of images, concepts, and words. One host even found a suitable portal location. This host, Alita Garcia, died soon after, but the primary obstacles had been overcome. That should have made Batch 12 the one. Batch 12 produced five hosts, a change in the language from some Spanish to English. The orbital's vocabulary grew. It understood more and more of the broadcast signals pouring off the planet. The workers incubated well and almost made it to the hatching phase before unexpected complications resulted in the deaths of the hosts, including Blaine Tannerive, Gary Leland, Charlotte Wilson, and Judy Washington. Martin Brubaker's triangles activated a few days after the others, but he died just the same. More data. More modifications. 
probability tables indicated that batch 13 had an 82% chance of success. Multiple seeds implanted in 11 hosts for a total of 72 potential workers. 56 of those actually hatched and made it to the location identified by Alita Garcia. The workers started to build the gate. Success seemed inevitable. But then the rogue host appeared. A host that fought back, that killed embryonic workers and brought the human military. The workers had a name for this host. They called it the son of a bitch. The orbital tried again. Aside from some minor biological upgrades, batch 14 used the same strategy as batch 13. Probes went out, seeds landed, embryos germinated, workers hatched. Everything went fine until the orbital learned of yet another unanticipated fact. The rogue host could still hear. Structures grown in host brains acted like antenna, connecting embryos and hosts, allowing the orbital to direct them, to guide them, helping them find each other so they could work together to reach the gate locations. The rogue host remained tapped into this communication grid. It heard. It found the Mather Gate location. It brought the military. Again. So close. Successful worker design in itself wasn't enough to get the job done. The orbital changed tactics. Batch 15 worked perfectly. It dispersed near Parkersburg, West Virginia and produced six hosts, all of which made it to the woods near South Bloomingville before hatching. Batch 16 fired only a few hours later, spreading over Glidden, Wisconsin. 15 and 16 hatched in record time, built their gates in record time. The orbital activated the South Bloomingville gate as a decoy, drawing the human military. The son of a bitch found both gates. After all of these near hits, the orbital had only two probes left. If those did not work, the entire mission was a failure. It had to change strategy again. The large explosion that destroyed the Marinesco gate demonstrated that humans could react quickly and with overwhelming force. Placing the gates in secluded areas had seemed like the best strategy at first, but it also allowed for massive ordnance without much risk to local populations. The workers also needed protection. They were designed to hatch out of the host and then build, not fight. They could kill, but were far outmatched by the human forces responding to each gate. The workers needed defenders, something to occupy the human forces, fight them long enough for the workers to activate the gates. Since defenders would not build the gate, they did not need the template. That was good. That opened a new strategy. Because the new defender design didn't need a template, it could do something that the template-carrying embryos could not. The new design could reproduce. The orbital began modifying the next batch of seeds. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.